Alright, those of you that are still here, I want to invite you to take your Bibles and go with me to the book of Acts, chapter 21. In this passage, Paul is going to um, prison, and then he will spend the rest of the book of Acts being transported and part of this um, incarceration that he's under. And so we see that development happening here uh, as he's been going to Jerusalem. This has been predicted. And then we'll be in the, that will be the rest of the book of Acts as we've been walking through the book of Acts together. And so these passages, um, there's a, a lot, large chunks here um, in the narrative. Uh, of course, you know, he writes from prison, the prison epistles that we know, um, the other epistles in the scriptures. And so but we're looking at that, and as we, uh, Josh read for us the first section of this passage earlier, and we're going to look at some others here. So I hope you have your Bibles in Acts chapter 21, verse 26 uh, and then we'll be going through chapter 22 today. Um, and we're gonna, I'm not going to read the whole thing, uh, but I'm going to kind of uh, jump into it as we go. So a little different than we normally do, uh, but we'll be doing that together. But let's go to the Lord, ask his help. Our great God, we ask now that your spirit would use your word. Father, I need you. I need you to remind me of your presence. I need you to remind me of truths in the passage themes. I need you to remind me of my mind being so weak and need your help to, you're the one who teaches the Bible. You're the one who applies it. So we ask and we depend upon you greatly. And Lord, we need your grace to hear your word. So we ask that you would open the eyes of our heart, Lord, as we want to see you. Lord, we ask that you would show us truths. These are spiritual things, and we need your spirit to understand, because naturally we can't. And so, Lord, I ask that you would, um, what we do in these next few moments would impact eternity. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed the famous 95 Theses to the door of the castle church of Wittenberg, Germany. And the the formal aspect of the Protestant Reformation began. Of course, there are many precursors and aspects to that. But of those 95 Theses, number number 62 stated this, that the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. So number 62 of the 95, that the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. And that gospel was found in the righteousness of God's grace. And Luther would say that the righteousness of another instilled from without, the righteousness of Christ, which he justifies through faith, That it was an alien righteousness. It's not my righteousness. It's a righteous one outside of me, not from within me, not something that's infused in baptism and then kept by sacrament, but something that is imputed by faith. 
that just like Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And so this is the true treasure of the church. And what Paul's doing by his example in this time in Acts 21 through 22 is showing us by his example what his, that his true treasure is the treasure of the church and that of the gospel. And so this prison episode starts, and these chapters that follow are all episodes, part of this imprisonment. And sometimes you almost wonder, well, why is all this here? It's kind of like if you've been watching, you know, it used to be we just watched a movie and to get a story, um, and, uh, or you read a book and you kind of could you could kind of go and there would be an abbreviated version of the book. And so like really old books would have like the unabridged versions of things. And there'd, there'd be a start of a story and, uh, and uh, what's going on in the plot. And then there'd be like two chapters just explaining details. And you're kind of like, okay, I can see why those were taken out in the, the modern versions of those books. Because you're kind of like, it didn't really kind of keep up with the storyline here. And sometimes, or maybe you're watching a TV show and maybe you're binge watching it on Netflix or Hulu or something like that. And you're wanting to get a story and there's something that develops maybe between a relationship, a romantic relationship, or something's going on with this situation. And then you're like, oh no, then there's the cliffhanger, the ne- next episode. And you go to the next episode and it's nothing to do with this, what, that part of the story. And you're like, well, what was this one here? Can we just skip to the next one? But no, I got to stay there because it's there for some reason because you never know. I mean, Flash might run fast or so-and-so might this or Batman might whatever or whatever or she might meet him and whatever the story that you're watching or listening to or reading at the moment might be. And um, this treasure. And, and so so you might, sometimes we wonder, well, why are all these different details of these long chapters of, okay, why don't you just say he got to Jerusalem and just like Agabus predicted, he got arrested. Next chapter. Why give us all these details? Why give us all these things going on to us? And we see that going a few times here. Okay, why do we have to say he stopped here, stopped here, he gets to Rome, right? But evidently, the Holy Spirit thought this was important for us. And so that's one of the, one of the, the uh, we have this constant temptation to just rush through the Bible. Um, but the Holy Spirit thought it was there for us, so we won't, don't want to skip it. And so we see in Paul's testimony that as he's, these events that lead to his arrest, that in the midst of this turmoil, that we gain some valuable lessons and observations through his example. We're basically seeing him live out some of the principles that have been pointed out to us in previous episodes as he's going to Jerusalem. So, for instance, when he was uh, going up to Jerusalem, and they were predicting, even when he was meeting with the elders at the church at Ephesus, when he's at the, uh, Miletus, and he would say, I don't count my life of value to myself, in chapter, back in chapter 20. Um, I want to finish my course with joy, that I may re- that the, the course that I received to the Holy Spirit, to testify the grace to the gospel of the gr- God's grace. This treasure that we spoke of earlier, this treasure was that he could testify of this treasure, the great treasure of the church, the gospel. This was his only aim, as it would say that back then. He counted his life worthless because of the worth that Jesus and the gospel held. He also would even speak of when he was encouraging those leaders in the church, he's like, to do this because of the purchase of his blood. 
the church has this treasure of the the recipient of the purchase of the gospel is this beloved ones, those of you and I that are part of the body, the loved ones, the beloved, the purchase of his own blood. And because of that, he was willing to face danger, danger for the sake of the name, as we saw before. That even though they're predicting and the church is saying, don't go to Jerusalem. And then Agabus, don't, you know, this is going to happen to you. But he's willing, and sometimes we need to be willing to face danger. That there is a myth of safety. And it is not always the safe thing is not always God's will. There is risk involved in following Christ. And then the last time we were together, we saw that with all this, he was willing to face misunderstanding. For the sake of unity. He was willing to put up with those that were resistant to change. He was willing to to take the extra step to pay for four guys' haircuts, as we saw last week. And so we come to this, this summation of Paul's life. And it's all coming down to this, that he would give this. And so he is on mission. And this is contrasted here in the passage with the franticness and the frenzy and the compromises and the political games of not just the, the, the unsaved Jews, the, the, Jew, the Jews in Jerusalem here, but also by the Jewish Christians and how like James and the others are you know, wanting him, not wanting to really address or fix the misconceptions or mis, miscommunication, but go along with it and wanting Paul to, to help change that. And, and, but Paul, in contrast to all of that frenzy, has a level of peace and purpose, and really, especially as we enter this time of year, this is an example for Christians. With all the frenzy of the political scene, the holiday scene, that there is a, a realness and a facts to go to the facts. And um, so as he's being arrested, uh, maybe you can recall some old uh, classic uh, TV shows, the black and white days, the facts, ma'am, just the facts. And Paul is trying to get to the facts um, and they don't let him. And even the Roman, the, and we're going to see also a contrast here that, that actually the Romans do a better job of, of trying to deal with things than the Jews do. Uh, that they're actually wanting to deal with the real thing. So the gospel of grace always, often leads to the charge of antinomianism, that it's against the law. I mean, you see that. I mean, you see this in, in Paul's other epistles where he says, you know, shall I continue to sin that grace may abound? So if you're not preaching the gospel that people logically come to that conclusion, like, whoa, I can just keep sinning and nothing's going to happen. I'm not going to lose this. Then you're probably not teaching the gospel and teaching grace the right way. But, but then Paul would say, no, 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 no. It's this grace is going to teach you to deny yourself and live a godly life that fulfills the law of Christ. And so the gospel of grace leads to charge. It's suspicious. It is suspicious to religious people. Religious people are uncomfortable with the gospel. They have to think that some type of punishment for evil has to be the motivation for good living. I remember talking to, to a, um, a minister one time at a, at, a, at a, I think it was a Ponderosa. We were somewhere eating breakfast. And, um, and he, he held that, you know, salvation was something that, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, moe, or now he loves me, now he doesn't, you could lose the salvation. And, and I remember we were standing in the parking lot on the way out, and, uh, and he says, well, how do you motivate people to do any type of Christian living if they can't lose their salvation? Like, how do you get them to convince them to do anything? And that's how religious people think. If there's not some like, you're going to get zapped if you don't do this, or you're going to have this happen, 
um, there was no motivation. But if you have it by grace, Paul's trying to say that you, that, that they assume if you only get this by grace, then you're not going to live right. But the scriptures actually teach the opposite. That, and that's what we do as we take the Lord's table today. That communion tells us that we have had this grace experience and that the remembrance of that grace is what is to compel us in this Christian life. As Paul would say when he writes to the Corinthians, that the love of Christ constrains us. Not because, you know, I, I want to do good things. I want to I I I do nice things for my wife. On, on a cold night, I want to make sure that, you know, thing, the, the heat's on and I turned her side of the electric blanket on before she gets in bed. Not because I think she's going to, like, whack me upside the head with a, with a frying pan, although she might, but because I want to do nice things for her so that I can eat, right? Um, so, so this grace is a motivator. So we see this going on, and as we read earlier in the service, that um, Paul is dealing with these accusations and assumptions um, as they are brought before him. This angry mob attacks Paul, and this is where we're at in verse 26. So we just left off that he was um, he had taken these four men up for this purification, the end of this Nazarite vow. It finishes off there, and we see them. And when the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! Now, I want you to note here, this angry mob attacks Paul. Now, who are they? It says that they are uh, from Jews from Asia. Now, Asia is not China or Japan. This is Asia Minor. Now, remember, Paul had just come back from this third missionary journey all through Asia Minor, Minor, and most people think that these Jews from Asia were probably from Ephesus. Ephesus is where he spent three years of this time. He spent the most time in Ephesus. And remember, this was the same tactic they did in Ephesus. They, they had a mob. They incited a riot about Paul's teaching. And so these guys are there, and they see this same guy, and they've been just so torqued at Paul in Ephesus. They're, they're at Jerusalem for Pentecost. They're there for the feast, and they see this guy, and they're like, whoa, that's him. Help! We got to start a riot here. And now they've got a They were like, okay, if we couldn't make this work in Ephesus, it's for sure going to work here because we're right here in Jerusalem. And they call for help. And then they, then they incite the crowd with, informa- with misinformation and assumption. Just like mobs do today. This is a mob mentality. Often mobs are formed from misinformation and assumption. And so verses 27 to 36, they give these accusations. They give these, there's four of them, but they're really in two different categories. And so This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Now, what's awesome is sometimes your best um, compliments come from those that are attacking you. They're saying, Paul's been teaching this everywhere. Amen. It's very generous of them to say, wow, his message is getting out there. His videos have gone viral. Everybody's got this. But he says, here's what he's teaching everyone against, and he gives, they, they give four categories, this charge, his teaching, that against the people, this is verse 28, the law, and this place. So the first category of their accusation against him 
is really misinformation. They cited a false charge. What's the charge? His teaching against the people, against our people. Now, these are, they're basically getting red blankets and throwing it before bulls, right? They're trying to get an angry mob stirred up here. So this is at Pentecost. Remember, Pentecost was the celebration of the 50 days after the Exodus when the law was given to Moses. So penta, meaning 50. And so these are people literally celebrating the law. And it's their nationality, the nationalism of being Jewish. And so he's teaching against our people and the law and this place. I mean, they're waving the, the, red, the, red, the red flag there. And this is showing he, he, they're appealing to their nationalism. Now, patriotism is a wonderful thing. Patriotism is something we should encourage and teach our children and model ourselves. Nationalism is something a different matter. Nationalism is when you make that your identity. That is your, your ultimate, we are citizens of heaven before we're citizens, we're Christians before we're Americans. And so they're inciting that, that Christianity is not necessarily American. And to be American is not the same as being a Christian. And so they said, now here's the irony of this, this misinformation. They accuse Paul of teaching against the law. Where is he? At the temple. What has he just finished doing? Obeying the law of this Nazarite vow, paying for the haircuts of these guys and their offerings. There's a huge irony there. It's like, are you not even seeing where, he, where he's at and what he's doing? And so, um, and then against the temple. Oh, he's teaching against the temple. And then the next thing, the ne- next category of the accusation against him is in verse 28 as well. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Now, the first accusation was through misinformation. There, Paul had been teaching, not that the law is done away with, or you shouldn't do anything part of your heritage, but the law doesn't save you. That's what he'd been teaching. Not that the law was not a, a, a role or a purpose or good, and that we, or even for Jews to go against their heritage and their, and, and their uh, rituals, but that the law was not what saves you, that the gospel, this treasure, was that, we are, that someone else has already fulfilled the law for us, that he took the payment of the law for us, and he fulfilled the law for us in his obedience for us. This was what Paul was teaching, and that was confusing. It was misapplied, and they were distorting what he was teaching. But then he says that, that he brought Greeks. Now, this one is not just misinformation. This is totally not true, but Luke is very good and very uh, almost... Um, kind and courteous to them he says that basically this wasn't just a bold-faced lie but it was a half-truth spun through gossip so verse 29 for they had previously seen trophimus the ephesian with him in the city and they note the word supposed that paul had brought him into the temple it was totally made upon assumption they saw him with trophimus a few days earlier Saw him with four guys they didn't totally recognize in the temple. Has to be one of those. Two plus two equals five, right? You know, they they put two and two together and got five. And so they make this accusation against that he is doing this. Um, They suppose. When you have a preconceived thought, 
everything you see naturally fits in that. If you, uh, if you automatically have an animosity for someone, everything you see that they do, every person you see them with, every, you, 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 put in, you naturally put in that box of storing up that animosity in your case against them. People very quickly believe lies, especially when they support their prejudices. It's kind of like when you hear hearings about maybe a Supreme Court appointment, and everybody that was against the person being nominated at the end of the hearings, guess what? They were against him being nominated. Everybody that was for him being nominated after the whole thing, they were all still for him being nominated. We, when we see facts, we already put it into our preconceived notion. We very quickly to do that. Now, this probably started with someone not recognizing the, four, the guys that he's paying for their haircuts and taking them to the temple, not recognize them. And someone else says, I wonder who's that with Paul? Oh, you know, I saw him with Trophimus, that Greek guy. I bet, I wonder. And then they say something to somebody. 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 And no one ever comes back and asks Paul or asks the guys that are with him what's going on. He's bringing Greeks into the temple, right? This is gossip. This is what happens. This is evil. A gossip is someone who, a man who, or man or woman who stirs up dissension. Proverbs says they separate close friends. Now, what the issue was here is there was a separation between the courts and the court of the Gentiles and where the Jews could go. In fact, they'd even erected a four-foot wall. uh, And along that wall, they put notices um, uh, in Latin and also in Greek to make sure those pagan foreigners knew to stay out. In fact, two of those were found, uh, archaeologists found one in 1871 and one in 1935, and they were written in Greek, and it read this, uh, the exact statement, no foreigner may enter within the barricade which surrounds the temple and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. Basically, you come past this wall, and it's your fault you're died. Um, and so this was probably what Paul was referring to when he said that the gospel breaks down the wall of hostility between Jews and Greeks. We can see that tendency of that prejudice there. Now, it started out as a good thing to protect the temple, protect things from being defiled. It turned into something that was keeping other people away from the one true God. Remember this court of the Gentiles? This is where Jesus comes, where they have the wares set up, the money changers. And Jesus says, my house is not supposed to be like this. This is the same place that this is happening. Um, so all four of these offenses, that these, these accusations against Paul, are things that have capital offenses under the law. All of them are based upon misunderstanding and assumption. They saw him in town and supposed. You know what happens when you assume? They assumed. And so, now I want you to also notice the similarities between these accusations and other accusations you've seen of other people because uh, Satan, and the, Satan doesn't have, he has the same playbook he uses over and over. And these Jews have, are using the same playbook over and over. We see these same accusations. You remember from chapter 6, Stephen. He goes into the synagogue and they say, he is speaking against the holy place 
the temple and the law. Same exact accusation. They said the same thing about Jesus. He said that he would destroy this temple and rebuild it. He's speaking against this place. It's the same accusations to Stephen, same accusations uh, towards Jesus, and Paul is worthy to suffer in the same way. And their responses are all similar. They, they, they all faced accusations about the law and the temple. In fact, they even responded to, to Jesus and to Stephen away with him, just like they do to, to, to Paul here. Get him out of here. And in those, but all of those cases, Roman soldiers have to, are more reasonable than the Jews are. And all, each of them, their, spirit of resp- their response is mission-focused. Jesus', fo- Jesus response is mission-focused, what he's going to do. Stephen's response is mission-focused, and he sees the Lord standing, well done, greeting him. And Paul's response is the same. So when we're faced with these things, there is a good example in Paul here to remain focused on mission. So a few um, lessons we can learn from this part of it. Christians should not be like the world and the way these Jews are in the way they communicate. If you're going to state what someone has done or what someone believes, you should not do it based upon what you've supposed or heard or assumed, but to find out what they really did do or really did believe. And and just like this mob in Ephesus and this mob here in Jerusalem is full of confusion and rash and 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 angry on the basis of false accusations, false assumptions and misinformation. So mobs are like that today. I mean, so it is foolish to join in that rage of an angry mob. And so I warn you, Christians, don't be It's like, well, I'm not out rioting and things like have you seen this social media thing? This is what people do. They're sharing things they don't even know are true or not. I mean, and Christians ought not be part of that game. Don't share something you don't know is true or not. Research. Make sure you make, say true. You're hurting your own testimony and the cause of Christ when you're sharing something. Um, I mean, even if something's satire and you're sharing it like it's true. Or I mean, there's so many different things not to be a part of that. There is a there is a better way of addressing wrongs and, and and misconceptions. And the Bible's put it there. It's this principle of Matthew 18 principle that we would apply. When 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 you hear gossip. I was listening to someone this morning. When you hear gossip, forget it. Don't let it enter your ears. Don't believe it. Know that there's a tendency of my mind and it's a tendency in my flesh when I hear gossip to want to believe that and then let that taint everything I do. But in my mind, I'm saying, I'm not going to hear that. I'm not going to believe that. Proverbs would say to not answer in your own mind a matter before you've heard the whole. Okay, I've only heard this, so I can't come to a conclusion. I I can't do that. I'm not going to believe that. So I ask you, Christian, how do you respond when you hear gossip or slander or a false witness about someone, maybe an unsaved person, maybe someone on a different side of the political sphere as you, maybe another believer? How do you know if it's false or true? And you need to know that your heart is inclined to believe things according to your own prejudices. I mean, I have prejudices. When I see things politically, I assume certain reasons for it and the certain outcomes and certain motives of people. And I've got to be careful that I don't assume that because I'm just assuming, just like this mob did. 
I can't do that. So be careful during this political season. That should not be the way Christians respond or retweet. Um, a gossip is a talebearer or a scandal monger. Someone who's, I mean, there are certain people that if there's stink, you can pretty much sure there are certain people that will always be in the midst of it somewhere, whether that be kids in school or adults in church or people in a community. When there's something stirring, there's certain people that are always there, and those are the ones that have that talebearer, that gossip, that bearer of false witness. A gossip is a person who has privileged information about people or proceedings, and they choose to reveal that information uh, to those who have no business knowing it. And often for a gossip is different than someone who's just sharing information because of a couple different motives, intent, and the type of information shared. Gossipers will often have a goal of building themselves up by making others look bad or that they uh, want to speak of the faults and failings of others, um, maybe revealing potentially embarrassing, shameful details of someone else or something of someone else and without their knowledge or even their approval, often intended to do them harm. And that is, gossip is probably one of the worst sins of the church. And we all need to beware of it. Beware of coming to false deductions. Beware of bearing false witness. Um, And so, this happens to Paul. And the mob is incited and they're angry. But then the Romans come. At the end end of the temple court, there was the uh, fortress of Antonia. That, and they had, it was kind of a, they had their riot gear ready, their mob squads all there, and they come down and they uh, take and bind uh, Paul. And so we see this going on here, and they, so they take him, um, and um, Paul speaks to them there. They take him, they brought him to the, they bound him in two chains. He inquired um, he, who he was and what he had done. Verse 34, and some of the crowd were shouting one thing and some another, and he, being the commander of the group here, could not learn the facts because of the uproar, so he ordered him to be brought to the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried away by soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed him, crying out, away with him. And so... um, they, they suppose that he is this Egyptian. So you go to verse 37. So he says, Are you not the Egyptian? Then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the, uh, of, of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, I am a Jew of Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And so he accused, they're like, hey, he just assumes, he's like, hey, aren't you, this is kind of, there aren't, aren't Miranda rights or anything like this. They don't like, they, so, they, so they, they arrest him, bind him, take him into custody and say, by the way, what's your name and what did you supposedly do? You know, it's like, how's that work, right? right? Ironically, though, it is that that God uses in his providence to rescue Paul from the situation. Right. So um, he says, wait. So they're saying, hey, we had this issue. Now, Josephus, the secular historian, said, I bet this is this. The, the, he, he had told the story about this Egyptian, um, basically a um, freedom fighter, zealot against Rome, against Romans and Jewish sympathizers to Rome. Um, and he had Josephus exaggerated and said it was three thousand. They're saying here it was four thousand. But this guy, this Egyptian guy that led this revolt, um, had claimed that the, he, by his command, could make the walls of Jerusalem fall. Then they'd overpower the um, uh, Romans. 
And uh, so he got 4,000 people together on the Mount of Olives, and the, the Romans did a very good job of squashing that thing, getting rid of it, and they were called assassins. They used hidden knives to assassinate Romans and Jewish sympathizers. They were called, they were basically terrorists. They were dagger men, uh, as the, the word would say there. But we see something else going on here, the function of secular government. There's no not innocent until proven guilty. There's no Miranda rights here. Yet God used this to protect and give an audience to Paul. So after they're in custody, what have, who are you? What have you done? So I want you to note here, this is an interesting observation, that the very institu- institution that God set in place becomes the very institution that God used to protect Paul. That there are certain institutions that God has placed in the world, and it is good for us to stand by them. So the first institution that God initiated on the earth was the family. And we need to stand by the family and protect the family and guard the family and, and fight for family values and the nucleus of the family. But another institution that God's established by his will is that of civil government. And civil government is made up of people, so they mess up, they do bad things. But God often uses that. He used civil government. He used a census to bring Jesus to Bethlehem. He used so many. We can see this throughout that God used this. So this institution that God set up, and so we would do this. And so, and then um, it protects him. Um, so when you're in a situation where the powers that be, that you are in a country of democracy where you have voting privileges, that you are part of the decision of that, be involved in that. So go vote. Be involved. Be part of it. But at the same time, so he cites his, when we get to chapter 22, he cites him being a Roman citizen. And being a Roman citizen protected Paul from a couple things. It protected him from a lynching and from a flogging. And we see there towards the end of chapter 22 that this made him exempt from a flogging or the use of the flagellum or the cat of nine tails. And so um, and then he asks to address the crowd there, verse 40 of chapter uh, chapter. Um, 21, Paul addresses the crowd. And the lesson I want to point out here in the time we have left, and maybe we'll get one more lesson in in our time, is the value of diplomacy and the use of diplomacy. Last time we talked about Paul's tact in dealing with the Jews and the Jews, the Jewish, the Jewish Christians with James, his tact with them of just knowing the appropriateness and being sensitive to the situation. I want you to note here that Paul is very kind and uh, courteous and respectful to the Roman authorities. He requests. He doesn't make, he's not in your face. He's not waving his bill of rights in their face. He's, he's, he's like, could I do this? Could I, could I, would you permit me to speak to the, to the crowd? And then another thing that he does, verse 40, and when he'd given him permission, standing on the steps, motion with his hand, and it was there a great hush. Now, this is the one I don't know about in this passage. What type of motion did he make that this crowd, that's this huge mob yelling, that the, 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 the Romans, the, the soldiers can't figure out what from what, that they take him out, and Paul does some type of motion to, and they hush. That's just an incredible thing. I, I, I'm not sure there, I'm have, other than the Spirit's work in them. And he addressed them at the end of verse 40 in the Hebrew language saying, and then he goes into his, testimony now the, the word there could either be it was the, it was the common language of the people so it may have been an aramaic you might see that in some translations you see that hebrew there it was the common language of the people in other words it was a very good so he had spoken greek to the um 
the Romans, and then he speaks to them, and, the, and, and, and so when they heard this, it, it was just very diplomatic in how he handled that. It's very, very wise. Um, he, the spirit and means in which he approached people and the way we approach people is so important um, that we're diplomatic in that. And also, I think there's a lesson here that all of the things about your story, all the parts of your life, your education, your lack of education, your experiences, what you've learned, all those things, all can be used by God for strategic moments in time. Um, and he has a purpose in that. All of the things in our lives, God can use those as vehicles in his plan. Um, and he does this in speaking in their native language, in the language of the people. He establishes his Jewish roots. And then he goes into chapter 22, and he gives his defense. So he says, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. Well, the word defense there is the word apologia. Uh, apologetics is where we get that word from. And an apologia, uh, a defense, is when someone makes a defense about what they are doing or believing. So he's given a defense of that. And this is the first of several defenses during this incarceration that Paul gives. And he's attempting to show them uh, the, the, the roots he has in the scriptures and in the historicness of the, the Jewish faith and also his conversion and also his purpose of wanting to get this message to the, to the Gentiles. But I want you to note this. So he says, start there in verse 1 of chapter 22, brothers and fathers. Does that sound familiar to you? Where did he get that? We often imitate people we've seen before. We have mannerisms of people before us that are our heroes. You probably walk like someone who is one of your heroes. Someone might see you walk and say, you walk just like your father does. Or, you, or your mannerisms are just like this person. Or sometimes we'll see a preacher and we'll say, ah, you can tell he w- worked under this guy because he has those same mannerisms, the way he does this or the way he does that, you know? Um, where did Paul get this, Bro- that greeting, brothers and fathers? Maybe it's something common, but I think there's something more to that. If you go back to chapter 7 and verse 1, Stephen, when he gets to give his response, and there's this Pharisee of the Pharisees holding cloaks, watching, supporting them, watching Stephen, chapter 7, verse 1, Stephen says, brothers and fathers, hear me. He's doing what he saw when he was on the other end of the same exact situation, very similar situation to Stephen. So his defense accomplishes a few things, shows his faithfulness to his Jewish heritage, that he's tying his culture, that, that this, the culture, they, they wanted something that was ancient. He's like, no, 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 this is not some Johnny-come-lately religion I'm starting. This is not some new sect of, of Jewishness, a Judaism. This is the fulfillment of what the, our, the, the fathers and what the law was all pointing to in the Messiah. And then he gives his story of his dramatic conversion and shows how he's fulfilling God's call to take salvation to the Gentiles. So chapter 2, Paul defends his gospel ministry, tells of his conversion and his commission. So, And I, I love how he does this here. As he goes and he says, I am a 
Jew, born in Tarshish of Cilicia, brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. You can almost hear them as, as they're saying, like, so like there's that, he's like, oh, he's from Tarsus. Oh, he's a Jew. Oh, he's one of us. Oh, and then I was educated at Gamaliel. Now, Gamaliel was known as more often these, as these rabbis got more educated, they would become more dogmatic and mean and cold, but Gamaliel was known as being someone who was whimsical and had tolerated other ideas. And they're like, oh, so it's kind of like you're, they're hearing him and he's kind of like saying, hey, I got a degree from Harvard, guys. I'm one of, you know, and they're like, so the Ivy Leaguers are like, oh, he studied with Gamaliel. And so he's building this rapport with him. And he's like, I was zealous of all this. I persecuted this way. I was like you wanting to kill these followers of the way. And as the high priest and the council of elders can bear me witness, it's all oh, you're appealing to our leaders here. You can almost see them kind of like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And from them I received letters to the brothers and journeyed to Damascus. And then he goes and he says in verse 6, and as I was, and this is the third time in the book of Acts that he gives his testimony like this. And as I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon the great light of heaven suddenly shone around about me and I fell and, and ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And he goes on, and Paul gives the rest of his story here. And I want to encourage you with this. He shares his story, that people may doubt your theology, and they may doubt and accuse you of the details of what you're doing, but your own story, your conversion is at the heart of a convincing testimony and an argument against them. Especially when that's backed up by a godly life. And he mentions here how Ananias got involved. But one Ananias, verse 12, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me standing and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers, verse 14, appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. Now that word, I talked about how the righteousness of God coming from outside of us, not inside of us at the beginning of this message and back to the Reformation beginning and that treasure of the righteousness of Christ. It's the, the treasure of the church. Ananias, he, he makes this case, Ananias, you know the one spoken of well of all the Jews? He said to me, brother, Saul, God did this so that you could see the righteous one. The prophets foretold of the righteous one, the Messiah, the righteousness, the righteous one, the law, they thought that they got righteousness from the law. This is the righteous one. He's pointing in this story to the righteous one to hear his voice. Oh, you might be Ananias for someone this week. You might be someone who can point them. Maybe they could be uh, a kid in your uh, some, a group in Awana or Sunday school or someone you're talking to or a neighbor or someone that you might be an Ananias for someone. Um, and so he gives his testimony. I want to encourage this. There is such power in your testimony it is so important for you to have a conversion story. Now, your conversion story is like anyone's conversion story. I'm a sinner. God is great. God showed me I need him. I believed on him. 
We don't need to brag about it and have all the bells and whistles about how great we were and how, how much we loved our sin and how much fun we had in our sin and embellish it. And sometimes people will think, well, I was only saved when I was four or I was only saved when I was 50 or I was saved. And, and, and everyone is a miraculous uh, a grace story. But use your story. Use your story. That's really what brings us together when someone enters into membership of a church, when they come into the waters of baptism, they're telling their story, and we as a church are coming together and saying, yes, you're one of us. We're recognizing that in baptism, that your testimony is that you know this righteous one now. And so in baptism, the one becomes part of the many. They're baptized into the body. But then your conversion story, when we have the Lord's table, is the one of you reminding yourself that you are part of the many that the many the one you become many in us as we have communion one with another so think on your conversion story have it use it as a story use it when you're talking with people so a few notes of application as we complete here sometimes following christ will lead to prison and death and some, something unsafe. Paul gives us a good example of that. So I ask you, are you willing to follow Christ even if it means that? Another very practical, very practical lesson from this episode in Paul's life. Always speak politely to public officials, especially law enforcement. I should hear a big amen from this side of the room over here right about now. There's a lesson there. God has established civil authority. Speak politely and kindly always. Another lesson, that your testimony is a powerful tool to share the gospel. Your testimony is a powerful tool to diffuse tension in relationships or because your your testimony is boasting in your weakness, not in your accomplishments because it's not any accomplishment. Um, I heard a story um, of this monk in the uh, pre-Reformation days was out in the desert teaching and he was teaching and another monk was kind of embittered towards him and all the things he was preaching and teaching and, and, he, and, he, and, he, and you know how it is when you have something against somebody, everything they say just makes you more angry. And he's like, he's like he goes, you're saying this, but the outside of your cup is filthy. And the monk looks and says, well, it's a good thing you can't see the inside of my cup because it's even worse. You know, just I'm just going to boast and yeah, I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. Yeah, 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 I agree with you here. And that's what our testimony does. We boast in our weakness. Another lesson. Remember that your true citizenship is in heaven. Remember that Patriotism is a wonderful thing, and Christians ought to be the most patriotic people in the United States, and American Christians ought to be patriotic, and they ought to uh, support and labor and honor everything about our, our country. But also remember that as you read the book of Revelation, you don't see the United States of America listed there. That our communion, that when we come to communion, that we are reminding ourselves as we take the Lord's table that the church and the local expressions of the church are embassies of a greater kingdom. 
and that that's where our citizenship is. That we're coming to the embassy, living in a foreign country, to say, okay, I'm reminding myself this is where my citizenship is. And so, I say all that because of what's going on in our country this week. That Christians should ask themselves, which is more important to me? My political party or my local church? And I heard someone say it this way, that do you ask yourself, do you see, when you think of what could change our town, what could change, what could make Northview a better place, what could make Clarksburg a better place, if the greater change agent for our town that you see in your mind, now you answer this for yourself, is your political party or a business venture rather than your local church, I think that might speak of the nature and source of your, where your faith is and what you're depending on. If you think that the best thing to make this a better neighborhood would be a business or financial things or a political party governing things rather than what Jesus could do through his kingdom and his kingdom people, we might, that might show something about the source and nature of our faith to remake, remind ourselves of the true kingdom that we are citizens of. And so, as we talked about before, um, these steps that Paul's taking and the development of his arrest and his response to it, are he's really applying the lessons he's been showing us in principle all along. Um, and it shows us his great treasure. His great treasure was the gospel. And so as we come to the Lord's table, as we take these steps, communion teaches us that those who have experienced grace are motivated by grace, not by law. And that's confusing to the outside world. And if that's confusing to you, it might be a question, do you really get the gospel? Do you, have you really believed on Christ that you, he has fulfilled the law? He has actively obeyed the law for you. And, and that he's passively received on himself the penalty of the law for you. And that you can have the law fulfilled in Christ. That it's all pointing to him. And that's what we're remembering, that he has prepared this table. He has offered it to us. He is the one who made the means available to us, not ourselves. It is outside of us. It is a righteousness not in us, from outside of us, that we receive in faith, in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, we